This is a Rooster Teeth production. August 16th, 1918. A ragtag group of men on a rowboat managed to rescue an entire steamship crew from a flaming wreck. I'm Charlotte. I'm Patrick. Ahoy and welcome aboard Ship Hits the Fan, a podcast about some a of ragtag the ragtag group of men. <laughs> Ahoy and welcome aboard Ship Hits the Fan, a ragpag tag yep. duo yeah. of ding dang freaking uh-huh. just some people that like talking about shipwrecks. That's yeah. that's us, folks. Yeah. You know, I've been thinking. Okay. Last week was rough. <laughs> uh-huh. And the rescues. Yeah. They tried. They didn't get many of them. And that seems to happen a lot on yeah, the ships yeah, yeah. we talk about. And I thought, what about? Because otherwise we wouldn't be talking about I them. I thought, what if? Which isn't Patrick, just a general if, ship podcast. Huh? What if we talked about a rescue? What if we talked about a fantastic, oh. incredible display of human generosity, empathy, and going through all lengths possible to save ye fellow man? Sounds like maybe something for another show. No. Oh. That's what we're talking about today. Oh, uh-oh. I just said, like... Like, I don't know, 1918, August, you yeah. know, ragtag group. I thought maybe that men. was different. I thought maybe that was a separate thing. <laughs> I thought you were just, I, we were recording. I didn't realize that was part of the episode. <laughs> I didn't know we'd started. Remember we used to like take this part of the show to like thank people and tell people like to like recommend it or something? Oh, yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah we used to do something yeah. before we got into We used episode. to tell them there was like more stuff coming. That turned out to be a lie. I, there was like one or two things coming. It wasn't a lie. We just... A fabrication. I suppose in a way it would. I mean, we had every intention of doing it. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, that's the thing about life. (laughs) You know, sometimes a ragtag group of men don't come by and save your dreams of producing TikToks. Yeah. And that's okay. That's fine. This is a show made for people, you know, the- the, Sailors. Sailors. Yeah. Clocking in, clocking out. Yep. That's what it's all about. Or perhaps if, uh, if you're in the village, people and just are the the person who the guy dresses, dresses like, like a sailor. sailor. That yeah, shows like for you too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This is for okay. This is for sailors, people that commute to work by boat. Yep. And that one guy from the village, people. Yes. I wonder if my mom knows that they had uh, what you could say were homosexual undertones. <laughs> <laughs> I would hope by now, yes. <laughs> I mean, she didn't know George Michael was gay. That's true. Yeah. So maybe. Yeah. Who knows? She's slowly making her way through the backlog. So yeah, I say, yeah, yeah. hi, mom. I hope you're enjoying 2026. <laughs> 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 All right. Let's talk about the SS Merlot. All right. Mm, I'm trying to s- oh, s- Merlot, sip a yeah. Merlot. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Good stems okay. on this one. The SS Merlot was built in 1917 by Sir James Lang. Yep. Oh, and Sons. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. I'm just hearing there were some Sons involved. Yeah. For H.E. Moss and Company in London. Despite being built for commercial purposes, World War I was in full swing and the SS Merlot was quickly requisitioned for the war effort. Like so many of her sisters. <laughs> we weep. She was a steam tanker, originally designed for transporting cargo between the U.S. and the U.K. So is that like tea? Yeah. Yeah. Tea, tea goes out, uh, tobacco freedom. comes back. Oh, tobacco. <laughs> yeah, eagles. <laughs> At 129.5 meters or approximately 425 feet, the SS Merlot was the size of a modern cruise ship. It okay. seems small, 425 feet, compared to some of the larger ones. Yeah. Some modern cruise ships. <laughs> there we go. We fixed it. It was powered by a three-cylinder triple expansion engine with a top speed of, you guessed it, 11 knots. Yep. You probably didn't guess it. They knew. 
Even though SS Merlo had been requisitioned for war, she didn't have the speed or gunning capability of the rest of the British Navy. Well, yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. At best, she could transport supplies to bases as needed, but up against real warships, she was dead in the water. Uh oh. And uh, this being World War One, mm-hmm. <laughs> those waters were quite deadly yeah. because of German submarines. Uh, and the U.S. and U.K. were struggling to keep up. They were far ahead of us in terms of submarine technologies. But don't worry, by World War II, uh, hold on, wait, I'm just saying that they were even further oh, ahead even of us. Oh, it was yeah. even worse. Yeah, they were even better at it. How yeah. did we let them, how did they lose and then we let them make even better submarines? I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's a travesty. Anyway, the U.S. had just entered the war, but they had been quietly preparing for years. After witnessing widespread casualties in the British Navy at the hands of German submarines, yeah. I, I, don't, I only laughed because I thought of German shepherds. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were thinking about submarines with hands. That's where I was at. Well, not thinking of German shepherds with hands. <laughs> Interesting. That's worse, actually. The U.S. decided it needed to guard more than the open sea. It needed safeguards for ports and coasts as well. Along the coastlines of the U.S., there were small groups stationed near lighthouses and bases that served as emergency services along the coastline. One, established in the 1790s by Alexander Hamilton, uh, star of a musical, I think, haven't seen it, was known as the Revenue Marine Service. Their job was to stay close to the coasts and ferry in any ships that may be in danger. So they were like lifeguards, but uh, they're they're not just like horny teens sitting up there for hours at a time partying and tanning yeah yeah yeah. uh they still do the sunscreen on the nose like you think that would have like gone by the way of the the, the dodo by now but the ship does that too yes it's so funny watching lifeguards operate Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's it's just like hot teens running back and forth to each other and you're like what is this i don't think they're hot they think they're hot okay (laughs) they think they're hot i gotcha hot stuff you know there we go tristan and McCainla. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they run this beach. Yeah, it is funny because I don't feel any older than when I'm at the, sh- the beach like reading and like mm-hmm. they run past me and I may as well be a mound of sand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it's like, he doesn't know I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so the, 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 the Hamilton Revenue Marine Service, they were, they were boat guards. Yeah. Similarly, along the coasts of Massachusetts, oh, <laughs> Boston, mm-hmm. and North Carolina, oh, Uh, Raleigh, (laughs) Asheville, and the surrounding islands, the U.S. Life Saving Service formed in 1878. Mm -hmm. In 1915, these two services were combined to protect the entire eastern seaboard, and they became known as the United States Coast Guard. Oh. Which has a theme. They have their own song. I don't remember it. Yeah, but the Coast Guard. Uh, Despite being military adjacent, the Coast Guard was actually under the jurisdiction of the Treasury Department until the 1960s because their main task was to protect merchant ships and investments in port. I did not know that. That's very strange. I had no idea, but it's it's very interesting. So you okay? There you go. Okay. Wouldn't it be funny if, I mean. Maybe this is where we're headed, but if every single branch of the government had its own military, like, <laughs> extension. <laughs> yes, yes. That's a good idea. I think we should do that. Yeah, like the housing army. Yeah, yeah. That's probably close. Transportation. <laughs> Transportation got, battalion. Yeah. yeah. Under General Buttigieg. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's just, they're just going to Ohio and telling people to stay in their homes and drink tap yeah, water. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's actually fine, yeah. but they're holding, like, a rifle. Yes. 
Um, <laughs> anyway, the Coast Guard have since been transferred to the Department of Homeland Security, and now they serve as the enforcement for all federal laws on the high seas within the territorial jurisdiction of the U.S. But you know that. Yeah, you knew that. But in 1918, they were brand new, sleek and shiny. Yeah. So new, in fact, that people were not even calling them by their new name yet. In nearly all sources for the wreck and rescue of the Merlot, they are still identified as the life-saving service. It's a, it's, yeah, it's a fine name. It was a simpler time. Yeah. For the first time since entering the war, the Coast Guard had orders from the top. They were asked to watch for submarines surfacing near the shore. Now, we've talked about the use of submarines in World War I on the show before and how Germany had a near stranglehold on the Navy from below the depths. I mean, just this season, we talked about the Lusitania, yeah. who uh, is the reason that the U.S. is now, uh, well, the documented reason. There may, there may have been one or another, for all I know. Yeah. Anyway, previously, the threat of submarines had been a U.K. and European problem, but now they had arrived on the shores of the U.S. Uh-oh. This is interesting because I, I didn't really know this. Like, I, I was not super aware of conflicts, like, nearly on our shores. There's, like, a small handful. Yeah. In World War I, in World War Two, more. But even those, it's, like, weird. It's like a balloon that made it to California. Yeah, and then, like, the Aleutian Islands were kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah, and there was, but- like, proposed like aircraft carrier subs that would have ferried i think japanese aircraft to our yeah. our our our, our didn't shores. quite get there no they didn't but you know somewhere there's still that one guy probably on an island still yeah, fighting yeah, yeah. the good the good fight yeah. uh, or maybe not not the very good fight i don't know <laughs> <laughs> anyway the germans had sent long range mine layer subs to the us of a Within a handful of weeks, multiple different submarines had made swift work of sinking nearly a dozen U.S. and U.K. ships off the coast of North Carolina near Hatteras Island. Oh man, there are so many people that would just be jonesing for some kind of like conflict to come to America so they can like defend their home. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Just stand out front in their own sub. They're in their, in their, their personal. Sub. They're sub. 18 miles inland. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, no one's taking me out of here. Anyway, U-151 had placed underwater mines at the entrances to the Chesapeake and Delaware Bays as a means of halting trade and supply routes before making its way back to Germany. Just as U-151 left, U-117 and U-140 arrived and began cruising the coasts. Oh, they're just trying to party. Just hanging out. They're like those lifeguards. Yeah. U-140 focused mainly on the coast of Virginia, and over two days in August, they sank the O.B. Jennings, Stanley M. Seaman, the Merak, and the Diamond Shoals lightship. What was that? Is that a casino, casino? ship? Yeah, yeah, I was going to say. Only three days later, that same sub attempted to attack a Brazilian steamer called Uberaba. But this time, the USS Stringham was nearby and picked up the call for help. They were able to save the 250 passengers of the Uberaba while also dropping death charges in an attempt to hit U-140. They were unable to confirm it at the time, but they had in fact hit U-140, sending it rushing back to Germany. The sub was forced to rapidly dive in hopes of avoiding additional depth charges. They temporarily lost power and were forced to surface a few days later and return to Germany for supplies. Tail between their legs. Yeah. Not a great look, U-140. Kaiser is going to be unhappy. Oh, Kaiser's going to be so cross. <laughs> oh, dude, I don't even want to Kaiser think Wilhelm's about what gonna Kaiser's going to so say. Upset. He's going to be so yeah. mad. He was so mad. Anyway, this left only one sub. Dear old U-117, traveling the shores of the Northeast. U-117 was part of a class of coastal mine-laying submarines. 
Their sole purpose was to travel coastlines and smaller inlets and lay mines wherever possible. The sub had been built only weeks before her first voyage in June of 1918. She had a surface displacement of 1,146 long tons surfaced and 1,488 long tons submerged. She was 267 feet in length, but only 24 feet wide and 33 feet tall. Wow. Those Powered dimensions. by those, yeah, that's uh, sleek. Yeah. <laughs> She was powered by two shaft engines attached to external propellers, allowing it to travel at 14.7 knots surfaced and 7 knots submerged in water. Ooh, fast, too. Ooh, boy, she goes. The most dangerous thing about U-117 is that she didn't Her temper. Really she was, yeah, the drinking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is that she didn't even need to be that close to your ship to cause damage. She could fire torpedoes accurately at targets 8 knots away when surfaced and 4.5 knots away when submerged. Okay. The sub carried 14 torpedoes and 42 mines when fully stocked in addition to 800 rounds of small gun ammunition. Mm -hmm. On August 16th, 1918, the Coast Guard had spotted U-117 in the Chesapeake Bay, a few miles north of the Chicamacomico life-saving station. U-117 had mostly been traveling below water, laying mines, doing what she does, yeah. in hopes that these could catch ships traveling the supply routes through Wimble Shoals. Is that okay. also a casino? I think so. These shoals were directly within view of the Chicamaco... Oh my god. That's good. You got it. These shoals were directly within view of the Chicamacomico station. Leroy Stockton Midget <laughs> was on patrol that afternoon. A note about the members of this life-saving brigade. They all have the same last name because they are all related. Huh? The station was run by Captain John Midget. Leroy sounded the alarm. Alan Midget Jr. was the lightkeeper for the lighthouse. Okay. Uh, all in all, they had a crew of eight, and only one of them was not directly related to the Midgets. I love this. This is cool. Yeah. I'm imagining them all like dun 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 dun, dun, dun running yep. out in, yep, in yep. like quick succession, very like 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 uh like synchronized uh, swimmers. Yes. <laughs> And then the other guy is just trailing by, you like, damn midget family. Oh, that's interesting. I thought yeah. it was kind of someone who's been dropped in there. Like, Actually, no, you're right. It's hell? a boyhood friend who's almost been adopted by them. Right. But he's so yeah. much taller. He's way taller. And they're they're like five, six, though. But he's like nine feet tall. <laughs> he's nine he's feet like, tall. Yeah, he's like, yeah. That Harrison it's boy it's is nearly a son of mine yeah. <laughs> looking up at him. <laughs> anyway, Leroy was looking out of the south tower of the Chicamacamico station when he spotted the SS Merlot on the bay. Uh-oh. He said, that's a nice looking ship. Right on. They had been specifically watching for ships in the bay, but more importantly, they were hoping to see and identify a surfacing submarine. They'd heard reports from the Navy that U-117 was in the area and could potentially pose threats to ships in the bay. They had even turned away ships earlier for fear that lingering too long in the bay could make them a target. But this afternoon, all he could see was the Merlot. He estimated that she was approximately six to seven miles offshore. The Merlot was carrying a full cargo load of 6,679 tons of gasoline. I probably smelled good. Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of weird. I actually like the smell of gasoline. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> that's that's so strange. Nobody's ever th thought that before. Yeah. Each ton is equal to about 750 gallons, which is only slightly more than the average American driver uses each year. Yeah. Which means the cargo of the Merlot could have powered a small city's worth of cars for a full year. Small oh. city. Like, what, what are we talking here? Could be uh, uh, Tampa? Is Tampa a small city? I don't know how big Tampa is. I'm actually not sure. I'm, I'm blanking on every small city I've ever heard. Grand Rapids? 
Uh, yeah, that's probably, probably pretty small. Yeah, pretty Cedar small. Rapids. Cedar Rapids. Pretty, pretty, very small. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm currently chilling yeah, in yeah. Cedar Rapids. <laughs> <laughs> hey, everyone. We just want to take a brief moment to remind you that RTX 2023 is happening this July 7th through July 9th. RTX is our favorite time of year where we get to interact with all of the amazing people that give us the opportunity to make content. It's a celebration of all things Rooster Teeth with panels, special guests, community artists, cosplay, and more. There will be exclusive reveals, meet and greets with Rooster Teeth talent, and special merch available only during the event. We're changing up how the convention feels this year, and it's going to be awesome. Imagine a mini Epcot-style convention show floor with different attractions and activations from your favorite Rooster Teeth brands, all wrapped up in a summer camp theme. It's the summer camp for indoor kids, with Face Jam's Rat and Grackle Pub, a Red Web escape room, a f***-faced museum, Achievement Hunter mini golf, and even more cool stuff to do that we're saving for attendees to experience. So thanks for listening to me get very excited about RTX. We're looking forward to meeting all of you there. Head on over to www.rtxaustin.com to get more information about the event and buy your badge. Okay, anyway, they'd kept their cargo largely a secret in hopes that they could sneak past with supplies for the local base. But on August 16th, the U-117 was ready to torpedo literally anything that came close and Merlo fit the bill. The sub fired on Merlot and made contact. From Chicamacamico Station, Leroy watched as a plume of water exploded near the ship. Uh-oh. He knew right away that a submarine was likely to blame for the initial explosion. Paul, we got one. <laughs> <laughs> Call Paul. <laughs> Call Paul. Paul made it. He called for help immediately, but watched in horror as another explosion rocked the already unsteady crew. This explosion was different. A giant column of fire erupted from the center of the ship. And he's like, hmm, that's Hang not on. water. That's different. <laughs> Wait, don't call Pa. I'm still figuring this out. <laughs> the initial impact of the torpedo from 117 had punctured part of the cargo hold and started a fire, which ignited all of the gasoline. You hear that? That's the screams yeah. of, of 6,000 mammoths. Yes. <laughs> the gasoline explosion tore the ship nearly in half. Probably way more than 6,000. Yeah. A small group of crew members attempting to repair the ship from the first explosion were killed instantly by the second explosion. Mm -hmm. On board, the captain of the Merlot wasted no time. He ordered the crew to abandon ship immediately, and the crew began to lower their two lifeboats. See, the problem is the crew of this ship is not all one family of men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They would have been more bonded. They probably would have been able to avoid being hit in the first place. Each of the lifeboats was capable of carrying 18 people, which would save 36 crew members. Uh, unfortunately, there were 51 total crew on board that day. Now, yes, some of them had perished in the explosions, but there were still more than the two lifeboats could accommodate. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm getting in. I'm crowding that lifeboat. Yeah, I, I will get in there. <laughs> I, I am uh, getting try in. To, try to keep me out. You you cannot hold me back. No. I am, I am an unstoppable force, yep. and I will be in that lifeboat. Yep. They deployed the first one successfully, but then the crew faced another terrifying challenge. Gasoline is both flammable and buoyant. Yeah. Yeah, this meant the water all around them was on fire. We This was something that came up in one of our most horrifying episodes. The uh, the Indianapolis? No, the... Uh, well, the, yeah, okay, that one too. Um, it's come up a few times. Oh, the Doña Paz? Yes. Oh, yeah. That was bad. A sea of flame. Awful, awful yeah. stuff. Really only good in a universal stunt show. Yeah, that's its one positive use. Yeah. 
it is cool. When, when they, it, when looks, they do that. it looks cool to yeah, see water okay. on fire. It looks yeah, cool. It what do cool, we? Yeah. yeah. What do you want? I'm not scared by the shark though. No. <laughs> if the crew dove into the water directly, they were likely to end up covered in flaming gasoline, mm-hmm. which is the worst kind of gasoline to be covered in. Yeah. Even though the flames would keep the water warm enough for the men to survive without life vests, the flames on the surface would force them below with no options for um, air, uh, breathing. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. They worked hard to launch the lifeboats, but only one would launch successfully anyway. Mm-hmm. They also had to be mindful of launching directly into the flames. These lifeboats were still largely made of wood and rubber, meaning intense heat could damage and sink them instantly. Yeah. Meanwhile, back at the station, Captain John Midget ordered the crew to ready the boat for a rescue mission. Mm-hmm. As they prepared to go, Leroy reported that he thought he saw another ship on the water near the Merlot. He was wrong. A rare miss for Leroy. <laughs> there was no second ship. In fact, the Merlot had just broken completely in half. Oh. Paul. <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> the Coast Guard hitched their self-bailing surf boat Awesome. To a what? horse. Awesome. What? And rode out to the bay. Okay. Okay, so the, the horse wasn't pulling it in the water. Right. Once there, they jumped into the water and began rowing out towards the flaming mass in the middle of the bay. Uniquely designed for rescues, their boat was self-bailing, which oh. just means that the actual deck sat above the water with vents in the bottom, which allowed any water that got into the boat to quickly drain out. Oh, okay. That's cool. Yeah. Additionally, it had a small motor attached, which was rare at the time for small boats. However, rescue boats were one of the few exceptions. Regardless, this motor was not very powerful and it required the men to also row to move the boat through water. So it's just giving you a little boost, basically. Yeah, but I mean, fortunately, you've got seven of these guys and blood is thicker than water. Yeah, yeah. They launched and immediately began to struggle. The surf was particularly strong and required the entire crew to row in order to power through the waves. Some engine, you know, some motor. They also knew that with fire on the ocean, every second counted. The longer it took them to get out to the Merlot, the less likely the crew were to survive. Some smart cookies, these yeah. guys. Fire bad. Once they reached the fiery mass, they tried to find a way through to see if there were any survivors. Initially, they saw no one, but they kept sailing further into the inferno. Ooh. Survivors described the walls of flames as being hundreds of feet tall. <laughs> Which, okay. Hey, you know what? I wasn't there. Yeah. As be. they floated, a section of flame opened, giving them just enough room to row closer and see the first lifeboat and all 18 crew members aboard. Once they passed the initial flames, they were able to connect with the lifeboat. We should connect sometime. Yeah. They asked them to wait while they looked for other passengers in the wreck. The crew on the first lifeboat confirmed that there had been a second, but it had capsized upon launching, and though the crew was able to right it again, a handful of survivors had burned alive or drowned in the process. Yikes. Nevertheless, the eight Coast Guards searched the waters around the burning ship. They rowed out a few more miles and located the second lifeboat struggling in the waves. It had only six crew members inside. Captain John Midget was sure that more men must have survived somehow, so they took on the six men from the lifeboat and continued to circle the flaming ship. Mm-hmm. As they moved around to the backside of the now rapidly sinking vessel, they noticed another small boat attempting to launch, carrying the captain and a handful of the remaining crew. And even though they were a small group, they were still too many for this small boat. Oh no. The Coast Guard brought their surf boat alongside and towed them over to the first lifeboat. Now with all survivors in one place, they began a seven hour ordeal of oh. ferrying the crew through the flaming waves back to the shore. God. They moved one boatload at a time, and by 9 p.m. that evening, 42 of the 51 English crew members of the Merlot were standing safely on the shore. 
The entire rescue required the Coast Guards to travel a total of 28 miles in their rescue surfboat, nearly all of it rowed by hand. After returning from the rescue effort, Captain John Midget's log simply states, Return to station, 11 p.m. Myself and crew are very tired. Wow. That's reasonable. Fair enough. Captain Midget's crew received the Grand Cross of the American Cross of Honor. Okay. In the history of the medal's existence, only 11 have ever been issued. Six of those 11 belong to Captain Midget's crew. Wow. Aren't there eight guys? Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, two of them didn't do much. Oh, okay. Yeah. They also received gold life-saving medals for gallantry and humanity in saving life at sea from the British government. Uh, inscribed on the side was not to be used as a life-saving device. <laughs> <laughs> According to reports from the time, their eyes were bloodshot for days from being so close to the fire for so long. This is why it is technically the most highly awarded maritime rescue in U.S. history. Because of their bloodshot eyes? I guess, yeah. I think the fire. Yeah, <laughs> not the eyes. Probably, it's this probably is a misleading more the fire. Yeah, yeah, it's probably because of the fire and the fact that like it was a crew of English people, so they got English medals too. Oh, true facts. You know? yeah. yeah, their boat also survived and is now on permanent display in Chicamacamico's life-saving station. It's slightly burned still, and yeah. the paint is blistered from the rescue efforts. Yeah, to be expected. Let us in there. We could fix that right up. Yeah. <laughs> I fixed your boat. Yeah. Um, sadly, none of the remaining bodies were recovered, and they are considered lost at sea. The life-saving station worked to coordinate sleeping arrangements for the soldiers, and the next morning, they boarded the USS Lagonia, headed back towards the UK. The next day? That's yeah. so quick. Well, this is wartime. They needed They needed Good men. Good Lord. Following the sinking of the Merlot, U-117 continued to take down ships all along the coast. Not only were the mines she laid super effective, but she also took the opportunity to fire on ships whenever possible. <laughs> Unfortunately, a real go-getter. Yeah. A few days later, after sinking the Dorothy B. Barrett, the submarine was spotted by an American seaplane. The plane began firing on the submarine and alerted the Navy, who sent a submarine chaser after her. One of the midget boys. <laughs> Get him, Paul! They attacked with depth charges, but it was no use. U-117 got away. Oh my Again. God. God, I hate subs. Yeah. But they're so cool. I know. The following day, she resumed laying mines near Fenwick Island, mines which would continue to harm ships long after the submarine was gone. Uh, these mines would go on to sink the Minnesota, sorry, Patrick, yeah. the Satia, or Satia, and others. Still the next day, she began laying down mines until a severe shortage of fuel forced her back to Germany, but the voyage home was even deadlier than her previous week had been. What? Huh? She placed bombs for multiple ships, but also torpedoed the Nordhav, Bergstalin, Rush, Elsie Porter, Potentate, and an additional unidentified steamer. Whoa. Wow, that's... Just don't know what it was. Yeah. They attempted to attack another ship only a week later, but the sub was too short on fuel. She met up with U-140 to take on more to try and make it home. She didn't make it. Oh. Or, well, not under her own power. Okay. On September 22nd, only a month after the rescue of the Merlot, U-117 was towed into port in Kiel and lay dormant for the rest of the war. Yeah. They just rolled her over on her side. Yeah. It's impossible to tell exactly how many ships and casualties she's responsible for, but it numbers in the multiple thousands. Yeah. Only two months later, the armistice ended hostilities and the U.S. took possession of a number of German submarines as part of the agreement, including U-117. Oh. Yeah. All right. She was used along with U-140 and others as a type of sideshow attraction to raise money for war bonds. 
Oh. After the bond drive, she was partially dismantled and then taken out to sea and bombed for target practice. <laughs> That's awesome. Any any romanticizing the glories of war very quickly becomes cannon fodder. Yeah, yeah <laughs> like yeah, yeah. you are just. Yeah. It's just like this. Really, it, like it's like yes, this ship was instrumental in sinking and killing thousands in a war that Germany lost, and then it became a uh, property of the victor, and then they just bombed it for fun. Yeah. Yep. Hey, why hey, not? You know what? It's probably pretty fun to bomb stuff, right? Honestly, I would love to get out on the seas yeah. and bomb a, an old German war sub. Yeah. Call that me cool any day of the week. I'm there. I mean, yeah, target practice? Sure. Yeah. Birthday party? Anything. Yeah. doesn't matter. Whatever. Like going, to, like going to a bowling alley. Whatever. Whatever. I'm, Anytime, yeah. let me know. I'll get my surf boat out. You got one? It's self-bailing. And we're there. Me and the midget boys, we're going out to sea. We're bombing it. Yeah. Dang. All the stuff that happens two months before Armistice Day is crazy. I know. It's like, ugh. You almost made it. Yeah. And and my mind is almost wrapping itself around the inconceivable uh, atrocities atrocities of war. Mm -hmm. And then I'm, I'm just like, can I hear a foghorn? And, and just like that I'm not thinking about the evils men commit <laughs> I have an honorable mention for you Hi-o. man's best friend the Bering Sea's worst enemy dog <laughs> whoa that's right a dog named Nanook which I believe means polar bear is safely at home after making a 150-mile journey across the ice of the Bering Sea. What the hell? Yeah. Good it's a, I believe it's an Australian sheepdog of some kind. Something I like along those. Yeah, it's a yeah, cool-looking dog. It's kind of chunky. I've seen them. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're cute when they're chunky. So this dog, dis- this dog, Nanook, disappeared about a month ago in Savunga. It's one of, like, two villages on St. Lawrence Island. The dog's owners, they're from the other village. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. Okay. They're visiting family or something in Savunga. Two of their dogs run off. Yeah. One comes back oh, a little okay. while later. Might have been a few days or weeks. I don't remember. But it shows up again. It, it comes back. So N- not a total loss. You Nan- get one dog back. Yeah. 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 Nanook is nowhere to be found. However. Oh, where's Na- where's Nanook? I'm saying. I'm like, where's Nanook? Yeah, we don't know. Just gone. I'm asking the first dog. Uh, and St. Lawrence Island is just right in the middle of the Bering Sea. That's the body of water between Alaska and Russia. Mm. It is, it's closer to Russia than it is to mainland Alaska. That's but it's a part so of Alaska. Wild. Uh, well, it is actually when you find out where this dog ended up. Oh. Because, yes. So all of a sudden, Facebook posts start popping up of people like, hey, found this dog. But the, these are people from a town called Wales which is on Alaska's mainland, on the coast. Uh-huh. Like 150 miles from this island uh-huh. where the dog disappeared. Uh-huh. Because the whole thing's frozen. Uh-huh. So it's solid. Uh-huh. You can walk across it. Yeah. But it's 150 could. miles of ice. That's harrowing. Yeah. The owners think the dog probably survived on, like, a seal that maybe it found. Oh, my God. Well, there's just, I mean, there's tons of wildlife out there, including polar bears. Uh... But they were kind of like, yeah, he probably like caught a bird or just found a dead seal that something had killed or that had just died. Oh, my God. Yeah, because I think the dog was like kind of healthy other than a, quote, really big bite. Something got it. Could have been a walrus. 
could have been a polar a bear. I feel like you could. I feel like you could ma- make. There was a horse. Did you no, say? walrus. Oh yeah, could have been. Was, I mean, I feel like that's a bite that you could pretty easily identify, right? I mean, yeah, I'm sure you could. I don't think they cared. It's big tusks, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no. I don't think there were any tusk marks. Was but it pierced by tusks? Apparently it was a pretty large animal, and but the dog was fine. They 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 were able to uh, have it flown back to the island and reunite. That's crazy. And yeah, they just, it's it's safe. It's fine. It was it was bit by a polar bear, and it said, it turned around and said, brother, I am, yeah. na- I am named for you. <laughs> Let us hunt together. <laughs> and that's I how, it, that's how I got the, the seal meat. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, wow. Sh- shouts out Nanook. The dog. Just, uh, it's like Anchorman. And to all of our listeners in Alaska. Yeah. Do you hear me? It's like Anchorman. Yeah, I, I did. The yeah. I heard, no, I heard you, yeah. It's I like Anchorman. You. I did hear you. It's Sex Panther. Remember <clears throat> I Love Lamb? Thanks, everyone. Because <laughs> Baxter, you like Jack Yeah, yeah, Black yeah. Do the Chris. thing. Just do the thing. <laughs> the Fred Armisen is like, eat the cat poop. Do Remember? your thing. <laughs> do the thing where you say the names. <laughs> now. No, Will's vagina is... <laughs> I'll stop the recording. No, no one no, will no, ever no. know. I'll do it. I do want okay. to say that, that the show's written by Paige Wesley, and I do want to sh- say that it's it's edited by Gillian Reynolds, and I do, do want to say that there's art from, from Stevie Jude, and I do want to say that I'm Charlotte and you're Patrick. Thank you. Yeah. Bye, everybody. And he's like, news team, assemble. And oh, okay. blows on yep. the conch shell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah.